The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. I'd like for you to open your Bibles to the first epistle to Peter, chapter 1. And our subject this Lord's Supper evening is the Supper's picture of the atonement. In our observance of the Supper this past October, I told you I wanted to preach a series of messages on the atonement and that these messages would stretch over a period of several months as we look at uh, the Lord's Supper on the quarter. That separates these times that we have to talk about this. And now that we're in the observance first observance of this new year, it's been three months since the last time that we talked about this, and after thinking about that, I'm not sure that my plan was so good, because you may have forgotten much of what I talked about in the last message, but we thank the Lord for this. Uh, I started to say fortunately, but I don't believe in good fortune when we're talking about the, uh, the Lord's Word, so I'll just say the Lord blesses us here that Last time, the subject wasn't all that complicated, so we should be able to cover it in just a few minutes before we go on to more of this message. So I'd like for us to begin this evening by looking at 1 Peter chapter 1 and the 18th verse, and then following down to verse number 22, where Peter says, For as much as ye know that ye were not redeemed with corruptible things, as silver and gold, from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you, who do by him or who by him do believe in God, that raised him up from the dead and gave him glory, that your faith and hope might be in God seeing ye have purified your souls and obeying the truth through the Spirit unto unfeigned love of the brethren, see that ye love one another with a pure heart fervently. Then if you'll go over just a page or so to the third chapter and verse number 18, For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. These verses contain the word of truth that has occupied theologians for centuries. There's no way that we can touch all of the interconnections in this passage with other parts of Scripture in the time that we have this evening. But I, I just want to notice here to begin with that God had a plan from the beginning of the world how he was going to redeem fallen man from his sins. Two weeks ago in the Christmas message, uh, we saw that we looked at Philippians chapter 2, and we saw that there was a divine perspective of Christmas in the mind of God before he made the first thing that he made. When God made Adam, Adam was not a sinner. He was created in innocence. And yet in verse 20 of 1 Peter chapter 1, the scripture says that Christ was foreordained before the foundation of the world. It shouldn't be too hard for you to catch. If he was foreordained before the foundation of the world, then he was foreordained before Adam became a sinner. And if you keep this in its context, we know exactly what God or what Christ was foreordained to do. Verse number 18 says that it was redemption. 
that he was foreordained to redeem man from the fall. And he would do that by the sacrifice of his own blood as a lamb without blemish and without spot. And by the way, for your interest, if you want to look at this, the word foreordained is actually the same word that we have in verse number 2, which says that God's people are elect according to the foreknowledge of God. Foreknowledge is actually the noun form of the Greek word here. Foreordained in verse number 20 is the verb form of it. Both of them come from the same word. And this word means more than to know something before, uh, beforehand, before it happens. The word actually means to predestine. And so this shows us that Christ and men were predestined by God. Now we don't have any doubt that the fall of man was anticipated. Christ was foreordained, and so he knew what Adam would do. That Adam would sin, and he would fall, and by his fall, he would plunge the entire human race into the darkness and ruin of spiritual despair. And so if you want to make just a quick note about the necessity of the atonement, this would be it, that the atonement was planned because of sin. It takes place because of sin. God's justice demanded that man should die because of sin. The penalty is death, and that penalty must be satisfied for God's justice to be satisfied. Every law that's broken requires that a penalty is paid, and the penalty always for breaking God's law is death. And so if God is to be just, there can be no sin that goes unpunished. The law doesn't require God to be merciful. The only thing that the law demands is that justice is served. And neither does the law demand that God should allow that the sins of one can be paid for by another. It demands nothing more than satisfaction. And for the payment to be paid by another, something has to be injected into that system. Uh, The law has no feelings. The law has no emotions. It requires only one thing, and that is the payment of the penalty. And so for mercy to be injected into this, there has to be a motivation for that. And the motivation doesn't come from the law. It comes from love. It comes from the love that is inherent in the nature of God. And you know this most famous verse in the Bible that explains it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. So because God loves people, he doesn't want them to die. And so therefore God made a way that the penalty could be paid without requiring man to be punished. That is actually the accomplishment of the atonement. Well, in the last message, we talked about the definition of the atonement. So we'll just review that for just a moment, its definition. The atonement is the satisfying of God. It's the satisfaction through reconciliation with God over the matter of sin. And more properly, the atonement is the method by which God achieves satisfaction to his justice. It's the payment of the penalty in order that his holiness will be maintained. 1 Peter 3 verse 18 outlines the atonement. For Christ also has suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. Christ suffered for sins, and that is the payment That satisfies. And it says that Christ brings us to God. That's the reconciliation that's affected by Christ's suffering. The atonement is vicarious. The meaning of that is that it is substitutionary. It was the suffering of Christ, as the Word of God says, for 
us or in our place. That's what brings us to God. Now, if I, if I thought that it would be of great benefit to you, we would discuss other views of the atonement. Some do not believe that the atonement was vicarious. In the 19th century, there was a man who began the revivalist movement, and he gave us the invitation system, a, a man who said to have brought over 500,000 people to Christ during his lifetime. But this man did not believe in the substitutionary atonement. Charles Finney is that man. And he said that Christ could not have died for anyone's sins but his own, and that his death could not be legally accepted on the behalf of others. Now, that begs the question, of course, how a man could be considered to be a soul winner if he preached a false gospel. Because how is anybody saved who does not believe that Christ died for our sins? Now, Finney taught that the only impediment to anyone's salvation was the unwillingness of a person to turn from sin, which he was fully capable of doing. That it wasn't to trust Christ as a sacrifice for sin, but to trust him as a good moral example for us to follow. That's actually what's called the moral influence theory of atonement. Finney denied that the new birth is a monergistic work of the Holy Spirit. And he said, and I quote from him, Regeneration consists in the sinner changing his ultimate choice, intention, preference, or in changing from selfishness to love or benevolence. And then in connection with that, he also wrote in his lectures on theology, and again I quote from him, Original sin, physical regeneration, and all their kindred and resulting dogmas are alike subversive of the gospel and repulsive to human intelligence. Now that's a man that many Baptists believe was a great soul winner. Jerry Falwell said that Finney was one of his heroes. Other evangelicals like Billy Graham said exactly the same. And surprisingly, in light of this, the Sword of the Lord, a well-known Baptist periodical, says on its website in its biography of Finney, which again I quote or do quote, although some of his theology was lacking, he was a powerful, spirit-filled soul winner who brought revival to cities and towns across the eastern United States. Finney was not lacking in his theology. Finney was a total heretic. Now, do you think that a man could be a spirit-filled soul winner if he didn't believe that Christ died as a sacrifice for our sins? Could he be a soul winner who doesn't believe in inherent depravity? Is that what we call the gospel of Christ? But do you know what drives the approval of Finney among Baptists? It's our subject tonight. It's actually a false view of the atonement, whether or not they want to admit it. But I don't want to spend all of our time talking about a false gospel and false views of the atonement. You're good historical Baptist, and we've come to the supper tonight in appreciation of what Christ did for us when he died for our sins. And so you don't need a lot of arguments to prove that Christ did, in fact, die on the cross in the place of sinners. And that his sacrifice was a vicarious sacrifice. It's by his blood that shed for us by his death in our place, that we are redeemed. He, bought us, he brought us to God. He reconciled us to him through the suffering of the cross. And that's why we're here tonight, to observe the Lord's Supper, to his death, until he comes. So I want to move on then to the part of the atonement that is the most confusing for people and really is the battleground for proper understanding of the atonement today. Now my second observation is the reality of the atonement. Real 
is a term that we can use for it, although there are several that are descriptive, would be equally as good. For example, was the atonement definite? We can speak of definite atonement. Was it actual or was it particular? Was it effectual? And I could use any of those. Definite, actual, particular, effectual. Or we could just say, was the atonement real? Did it do what it was designed to do? And then I might also pose that question in a somewhat negative fashion, and that is, was the atonement hypothetical? And you need to understand that that is the most popular view of the atonement, and unfortunately, it's the one that most Baptists have agreed to in the 20th and 21st centuries. It is that the atonement was hypothetical. And I know that that sounds bad, and I can tell you for sure that the view prior to the 21st the 20th and the 21st centuries, was not the view of a hypothetical atonement among Baptists. Now, fortunately, even though Baptists are terribly mixed up about who Finney was, I don't know of any of them that accept his heretical theory of atonement. They don't believe in the moral theory. They believe that Christ's death was substitutionary. However, this their theology of substitutionary atonement is not sound because they believe that it's hypothetical. Now, unlike Finney, I, I doubt that Finney was actually a Christian. I don't doubt that there are good Christians who see the atonement in a different way than we do. Uh, I think that they are confused Christians. So I think that we can say that good Christians are divided on the atonement. And I don't call them heretics. Uh, some of them may label us that way. But we believe that those who don't understand the atonement as we do are mixed up on this. They don't weigh all the consequences of their doctrine. And I'm not saying that we're smarter than them. I just don't think that they see through this clearly and understand the inevitable consequences of what they believe. In the end, they believe in salvation by grace through faith alone. And they believe that a person is justified by faith without the deeds of the law. And they teach that salvation of sinners is through the blood sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And they get that right. But they arrive at the end without proper understanding of how they got there. And that is that the atonement is real. Now, a few days ago, uh, a young man filled out one of our missionary questionnaires and he made a rather bizarre statement. Uh, we were discussing, I, I, I got into a discussion with him after I received his answers on the questionnaire, and uh, we were discussing Spurgeon and his interpretation of soteriology, and I said that our belief in this is like Spurgeon's. And he said that people that believe this are no better than Mormons and Jehovah Witnesses and Muslims. And so you see there is a hostile attitude, and I think that we're far more charitable on this subject than they are. And so we just simply say they are mistaken. They don't understand the Scriptures. And if I might also say this, that they degrade God. And I don't think the intention is to degrade God. They don't understand how they do it. But their doctrine is dishonorable to Him and, and to this amazingly meaningful death of His Son, Jesus Christ. So what about the reality of the atonement? Did Christ really satisfy God for sin, and does the atonement infallibly secure salvation for those for whom it was made? That's the question. Or another way to put this, does the atonement actually save, or does it just make us savable? Now, we're going to talk about this. We're not going to be able to finish it. Unfortunately, before we finish tonight, I might raise more questions, and, and they'll just have to wait until April 
And for some of you, that may be a horrible prospect. Uh, I know what I'm going to say, so it's not going to bother me too much, me too much, but it might drive you crazy. So uh, you'll just have to live with that, I suppose. But we do need to go on. This is a very important subject because the Lord's Supper is wrapped around the atonement of Jesus Christ. Now, the first thing that I'd like to say about this point is that we're swimming upstream. I've already described how most evangelical Christians have adopted the wrong view. Most people aren't careful to study these things, and so they just accept what they're told. And if enough people say the wrong thing, people think that's settled, and it's accepted as the truth, and there's no more discussion. But if you were to ask just about anybody today, if you ask them, what happened at the cross? Most people will say that Christ died for all people so that they will have a chance to be saved. Now, mind you, most of them uh, do not believe that everybody will be saved. Not too many people believe in universal salvation, at least not among evangelicals. They know that Christ's death does not save everybody. It could save everybody, but it doesn't. And so right there, they just told you that the atonement is not definite. They say that it's not actual. That Christ died to save people, but the atonement that was provided does not guarantee the salvation of anyone. That by itself, the atonement doesn't work for everybody because something has to be added to it to kick it off to make it functionally effective. And I think that you know what the addition must be. The addition is belief, that you must have faith, you must believe. And so the death of Christ alone doesn't save by itself, and so the atonement is inadequate by itself, and so it just hangs out there with the possibility of saving benefits, but to actually make it work depends on the sinner. In other words... The sinner's in control of the ability to make the atonement work for him. Now, here's the difference in what we say. We believe that the atonement of Christ did exactly what it was intended to do. That it was designed to save people. And all for whom Christ died are actually saved by it. And they are reconciled to God through the death of Christ. Peter said that Christ suffered for sins, the just for the unjust to bring us to God. So did Christ bring the unjust to God or did he not? Are there some of the unjust that he suffered and died for that are not brought to God? Well, that can only be true if the atonement is not real. That is, that it's not definite, that it's not actual. Or in other words, they say that the atonement is only hypothetical. It works for some and not for others. But we say that the atonement works for everybody for whom it was made. Now, we're going to get into this, and it means that we'll have to look at some other doctrines to fill it out and make it come to its logical conclusion. But let's think for just a minute how things kind of get screwy and kind of get turned upside down and we start to do things wrongly. And make sure that you understand this, that our doctrine affects our practice. Wrong doctrine yields wrong practice. And so the wrong doctrine of the atonement will affect our understanding of how people are saved and how that we are to witness to them to bring them to the truth. You see, if we believe that salvation only made, uh, or rather the atonement, that Christ's death only made salvation possible, and that by itself it doesn't infallibly secure their salvation, then what do we need to do? Well, we would need to find the thing, that is the best thing, 
that pushes them to a decision to receive the gift of salvation. Now, we've already, uh, we've already put the, the pen through the hinge of human decision, and so it's logical for us to depend on human ability to drive that pen all the way through. Now, what I've just told you is the mantra of modern evangelism. I can get anybody to come to Christ if I can just appeal to him strongly enough, if I can get to his sensitivities, if I can get to his emotions, if I can encourage positive responses to positive questions, if I can get him to the point that he'll say the sinner's prayer, if I can manipulate him enough to get there, then we can get this person saved. And I don't have time to go into all those methods tonight. If you want to know those, they're easily found out in the soul-winning books of many Baptist ministries. So we're faced with a world of people that all have a possibility, that is just a possibility, of being saved. That Christ has already paid the penalty for all of their sins, so that's not an issue. He loves them, and so we've got to find the key that will move these people in the right direction. And let me just say that that snuggles right up to the heresy of Charles Finney. And we all agree that he's wrong. What you've done here is taken away, the, taken away the force, the force of vicarious atonement. And they say that what we really need to do is to get people to look at Christ's example, to look to the cross, to see how Christ loved people and how that he did a selfless thing. And that moves us to tears so that we gladly come to Christ. That's modern evangelism. It sounds good. It sounds plausible until you start to pull it apart and look at the components to see if it makes sense logically and biblically. And I can tell you that those two things are not mutually exclusive. So the first problem that you encounter is this, is that hell is populated with people whose sins are paid for. Do you understand this? If Christ made atonement for the sins of the whole world without exception... That is, all people without exception, and he paid the penalty for the whole world to reconcile them to God, then Christ died for people that are in hell that have their sins paid for. Now we would have to ask then, what is God punishing them for? I thought the penalty of sin is what hell is about. So if their sins are paid for, then why are they being punished? Did God do this? Did he inflict the most, the greatest possible pain and suffering upon his own son, Jesus Christ, and yet that's not enough? That's not enough to bring people to salvation? And the logical consequence of universal atonement has to be universal salvation. That has to be true if the suffering of Christ was actually an atonement that satisfied and reconciled God. And what we get here, folks, is getting too close to Catholicism because they also don't believe that the sufferings of Christ were enough that's why they have the doctrine of purgatory. That's in order to help satisfy what Christ did not satisfy. Now, theologians of the past certainly thought these things through. The popular idea is that faith is the necessary ingredient to claim the gift of eternal life. And we agree with that to a certain extent. That every person in the world is saved. He has the saving benefits of Christ's death appropriated to him by faith. But faith is not the thing that activates the atonement. Now, if a person is in hell only because he didn't believe, then we would have to say that the sin that lands him in hell is the sin of unbelief. Most Baptists and others believe that. People are in hell because of unbelief. That's the sin that has to be repented of in order for people to be saved. 
Well, old-time theologians spotted the inconsistency in that a mile away. They anticipated that, and so they just asked a simple question. Is unbelief a sin? What would you say? If I ask you this, is unbelief a sin? Well, I think all of you would probably raise your hand and say, yes, unbelief is a sin. So the next question is, did Christ die for all sin? Can you be saved if there's a sin that you can commit that Christ didn't die for? So you see where it's going? If Christ died for all sin, then he also died for the sin of unbelief. And therefore, I mean, we're talking about a universal atonement here. So therefore, nobody could be in hell for not believing in Christ. Because Christ would have paid for that sin too. Which leaves us with a real problem that people are in hell despite the fact that Christ did, in fact, die for all sin. Even the sin of unbelief. And so if he didn't die for unbelief, then maybe it's not a sin. So no matter which way that you approach this, you have a real problem with an atonement that pays for sins of people that are in hell. So what's the solution to all of this? Well, it has to be that people are in hell because their sins are not paid for. There, there's no atonement that's been made for people that die and go to hell. That's the only thing that works if Christ's death is truly substitutionary. And so when I say that people who believe in universal atonement tend more towards Finney than they'd like to admit, this is the reason. They have an atonement that cannot be substitutionary. In fact, in effect, rather, in effect, it can't be, which is exactly what Finney affirmed. And so, if we want to believe that the death of Christ was vicarious, that it was substitutionary, that it was for us, then we have to agree that the atonement was real, that it was actual, that it was definite, that those for whom Christ died will be redeemed, just as Peter said. Now let's bring in another doctrine that helps us to understand the problem. It's very difficult to discuss this without getting into other areas because the Word of God uh, and His salvation is so interwoven and has many facets. All of them have to be considered in order to get the entire picture. Now the belief then is that if we can just get sinners to respond, if we can get help from their emotions or whatever, if we can get them to see what Christ did for them, then they will be saved. Now, as I said, evangelism is geared toward that. That's why you have pleading stories and multiple verses of invitation at the end of sermons. Invitations to believe the gospel are not bad, unless they're bad, and many of them are. So what's the condition of this person that we're trying to work with? What is that person sitting in a pew in a church like ours tonight who's lost? What is his spiritual condition. Well, we've already said it. He's lost, right? He's, he's lost. What does that mean? Well, he found his way here, so how's he lost? Well, you know that what we try to do is to get people to make a decision. So he needs to make a spiritual choice to receive Christ. And most of you that have been around here a long time, you recognize the problem that we have with this, that the man who sits in the pew who doesn't know Christ has an Ephesians 2 verse number 1 problem. He's dead in trespasses and sin. That's what lost means. Could it be that soul winners are trying to save the lost and they really don't understand what lost means? This person is spiritually dead. Now the rest of the passage, if you go on and read, says that he fulfills the lust of the flesh. And it says that he's under the wrath of God. Jesus said that it's impossible for a clean thing to come from an unclean thing. Jeremiah said... Can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? 
then may ye also do good that are accustomed to do evil. The lost are accustomed to do evil. He can do nothing any more spiritual good than a leopard can change his spots. And that is a purposefully graphic image for us. And so we have to ask, is faith a good thing? Is belief in Christ a good thing? And how's a dead person going to do that? How's the leopard, how's the sinner going to change his spots? How's he going to do that good thing and come to Christ? Well, don't think that the people who believe in universal atonement haven't thought of this. They understand that they've got a problem, and so they have an answer for it. And it's called prevenient grace. This is grace that they say is given to all people that helps to resolve this particular problem, that it enables people to trust Christ, but it doesn't make them believe, it just makes it possible for them to believe in atonement that will possibly work for them. Now, there's one problem with that. Show that to us in the Bible. Where in the Bible does it tell us that there is grace that is already in you, that was given before you were born? Are you dead in sin, and yet you have grace in you? And if not then, when does it come? Does it come an hour before you believe? Does it come a minute before you believe? Well, I can show you that Christ saves without prevenient grace. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. In other words, there is nothing in you. Not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Not of works, lest any man should boast. John six forty four. No man can come to me except the Father which hath sent me draw him, and I will raise him up at the last day. Those are two verses that show that nobody comes to Christ because of something that is in him. Nothing causes him to come to Christ but one thing, and that is the effectual call of the Holy Spirit on his heart. A dead person has to be brought to life in order to believe, and that's the work of the Holy Spirit alone. Now, how does that then figure into the atonement? Well, it shows that if the death of Christ was for all people without exception, that the atonement is largely useless. All people that die and go to hell would never have the opportunity to respond to it anyway. However, the atonement is definite. And because it is, the Holy Spirit will quicken the sinner to life, the one for whom it was made. He quickens to life and gives him faith to believe. That's exactly what Ephesians 2, 1 through 10 teaches. Now, you and I know that who these, uh, who these people are, don't know, I should say, who these people are. We don't know who's going to believe. We can't dig into the mind of God to find this out. So we're just told to preach the gospel to every creature. And then the Holy Spirit will quicken to life whom he will. It's not ours to delve into the secret things of God and try to figure those things out. Now, I need to conclude the message so we can observe the supper. There are unanswered questions and more to discuss, but I want to leave you tonight with this thought. It's hard to find a Christian who, who disagrees that God already knows which people will be saved. God already knows who will believe. He knows who won't. He has all that information because he is the omniscient God. That means there's, there's nothing that you or I could do that can change the total numbers of people that will be saved. But does that mean then that we don't preach the gospel? No, because the gospel is the means of their salvation. We, ha we have to preach it because the atonement of Christ is real. We know that Christ died for sinners and he brings unjust sinners to God. And because it's definite, we know that they will be saved. 
And we have the incentive to preach because of that. We have more incentive than a person who believes that the atonement is indefinite because all that they know is that it's possible for people to be saved. Now, perhaps they would say that maybe it's even probable that some will be saved, but they cannot know for sure, absolutely, that anyone will be saved. If salvation is only a possibility, then it's also a possibility that nobody will be saved. That's the problem with an atonement that makes salvation possible for all, but it secures the salvation of none. And so you ask them, ask them, is everyone saved by the atonement? And they will say no. Though everyone is not saved by the atonement, ask them if they believe that it was real, that it's effectual, and they have to say no. Ask them if it's definite, they have to say no. Ask them if it's particular, they have to say no. How can we know that all people are not going to be in hell? Well, if the choice is only theirs, and Christ died for all, whether they are in heaven or hell, then we're dependent upon two things. Salvation is dependent upon two things. It's dependent upon our ability. Are we, are we smart enough? Are we adept enough? Can we manipulate enough to get people saved? Number two, salvation depends on them. That the death of Christ wasn't enough, not by itself. That's not enough to secure their salvation. So we ask, are they smart enough to do the right thing? And I'm thankful that we don't have to depend on those two things. If salvation depends upon me... And upon the lost, then we're in big trouble. But I know this, if it depends entirely upon the atonement of Christ, then I know that heaven's going to be populated with a vast number of people that we can never know their number. Christ died for them, the Word of God says. They must be redeemed. That's the hope of the gospel. The atonement, not the will of man, is the fuel of salvation. Now, I'll conclude with that for, for this part of our study. You stay tuned. There's going to be another part and maybe more. But at this time, we're going to present this atoning, vicarious, real, and definite atonement of Christ in the picture of the Lord's Supper. So we're going to sing the communion hymn, first of all, which is the gospel of Christ's sacrifice, the, the sacrifice in song. So I'm going to pray. And then we're going to sing, and then we're going to remember this great sacrifice that Christ made for sin. When he died, he died vicariously. You know, this is what I can say about Christ's death for sin, that I know that it was for me because I have believed. I have no doubt that he died for me. I have believed. And I can tell you that if you believe Christ died personally for you, that satisfaction has been made to God, and you are infallibly saved. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time we gather together tonight. What a great blessing it is for us to sit at the Lord's table and to partake of these elements that demonstrate what Christ did in the atonement, that he gave his body to suffer for sin, that he gave his life, that his blood was shed, as Peter says, to redeem us from our sins. Lord, we're thankful for that. We're thankful, Lord, that we didn't have to do anything here that... You supplied all the grace that's needed. You give us the faith to believe it. And Christ did everything at the cross that needs to be done. And we need not depend on anything that we do. We thank you for that, Lord. And we thank you for the great sacrifice of Jesus Christ that we will show forth tonight. In his name we pray. Amen.
Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Ronan Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Ronan Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.